Father, we again come to you and we just ask that your presence would be here and that you would speak words to us through me that we need to hear. We just give this time to you and ask that through your mercy that you would be here and have your way. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a message that I want to speak tonight. It may take me a little bit of time to get there, but I want everybody to hang in there and nobody jump off the wagon too early, okay? So hang in there. Because I asked myself a question, and it's kind of a unique vantage point for me to ask this, because I asked, what makes a good sermon? Because I can stand up here after preparing a sermon... And then, the next meeting, I run back there and take my seat and hear a good sermon. And so I ask myself, what is in a good sermon? From a hearer and from a speaker. And I would ask you all tonight, what do you need in a sermon? Week in and week out. What do you need in a sermon? And if need is too strong in our modern day uh, word of, of being offensive, what do you want? in a sermon. You come in here twice a week, not only to praise the Lord, but to hear a sermon. So do you want just something that's educational? Or something maybe informative? Or do you want something that's encouraging? So far, everybody's on board. What about something that is corrective or admonishing? Or what about decisive messages like when a pastor is faced with a crisis or a situation and he must be decisive? Or is a message to you all more like, is it in your life like an alarm clock? Because spiritually we kind of begin to doze off throughout the week and we can come back in and, man, we leave out there and say, that was a good message. It's like the alarm clock went off. But then alarm clocks have snooze buttons too. So I just ask you the same thing I've asked myself in coming in here. What is in a good message? What do I need or what do I want in a good message? Maybe not too hot, not too cold, just right. Not too excited, not too dead. Just something that is just right. Do you think it's possible we could come in here after many, many years and just become observers? Or could we just come in and be someone who analyzes different personalities? We've had three speakers for the last five months, very different personalities. Have we come in saying, who's up this week? Hmm, let me see what he's got going now. Let me see what he's going to say. Are we, are we analyzing and just observers? Because like Jeff spoke Sunday, a very good sermon. And he mentioned in there several times about in Revelations 3 that when people say, I have become wealthy and in need of nothing, and God says you're poor, blind, miserable, and naked. Could we come in... Could our spiritual lives get to the point, I'm just asking, to where we don't need anything? 
do we have any needs tonight? When you come in, was there a sense of, I need to hear from God? Because I want to tell you something tonight. You and I are very fragile. We need to hear from God all of the time. We do not have enough history or enough things together that in a moment we can turn into someone who desperately needs the Lord right then. We're only a moment away from that. We are a needful people, whether we realize that or not. And tonight, like I said, I'm headed towards something, so stay with me. Lord willing, we're going to get to there. And, but I want us to turn our Bibles, in our Bibles, to 2 Timothy. And I want to tell you why that I think it is very important that we realize our need. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 through 5, But know this, that in the last days... Perilous times will come. Perilous times could be translated times of stress. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the form of godliness but denying its power. From such, turn away. We are in the last days. I don't know how many of you all are in tune with the news, but some of us are pretty exposed because what we do is tied to what happens in the world. Let's face it. If we all got together, we could not eat as many cattle as I have. So we are tied to selling them at some point. So, and then you get the world events going on, and you think about how fragile the world is. We've heard all of our lives, we're in the last days, and folks, we are in the last days. Perilous times will come, times of stress. All of these, these 19 traits, we look at these, we immediately, in our good church-going minds, we dismiss those to be outside of the church. But I want to ask you, do you think that the influences outside can come into the church? Can they come in in their own small ways into our families, into our children, into our marriages? And how much effect does that have on our Christian life? Because I'd like to title our message tonight, Our Need of Endurance. Our Need of Endurance. This generation, the word endurance would not be the way you would describe it. This generation does not endure anything. The influences that are outside. If you were to take, if you were to take the things that we had learned about being an overcomer, to contend earnestly for the faith, to fight the good fight of faith, to lay hold of the promises. The very walk of faith implies the need of endurance. 
it implies the need of being able to take hold of something and not turn loose. Take hold of the plow. The plow, that, and we've heard it described how many times? If you've ever seen somebody take hold of a plow in the old days, he had his hands full because that plow is not sitting up in a tractor punching in a GPS. It's standing behind a horse or an ox and it's hitting rock and it's hard and has need of endurance to fight the good fight of faith. Because I tell you, adversity, we consider it to be right outside of the church. But it's not a matter of if we're going to deal with it. It's when. Adversity is coming. Perilous times are coming. This is the last days. It already is. It's a matter of do we realize it. An ambush is only an ambush if you don't know it's coming. If you know it's coming, it becomes a battle. So would it not be the right thing for a man to stand before the church and to warn the people and say, we have need of endurance because perilous times and adversity is already here. If I was to go back, if you went back in time, let's consider this. Let's consider the, the decline, the moral decline of our society. You all made me sing last Wednesday, so I'm going to write on the board tonight. What about that? That's what you get. If you started in history, and you said the moral decline did this, we are now doing this. And if each generation was a mark, and each generation accurately said to the next generation, things are really bad, I can't believe what they're doing nowadays, well, there's truth in that. But the problem is, what about the generation here, here, and here? Because I believe my generation was right there. I can look back at my farmer friends. They're right here. I can look at the kids at our schools and where that's headed to, and it's down here. If all through history this has been the way, and I'll tell you, the reason this is, this is no accident, we're in the last days. And if we don't realize that by looking, then we're not being truthful about it. And so if I was to go back, say I went back for right here. Say I went back turn of the century. And I stood up in an old country church, and I said, people, <clears throat> you have need to be able to endure adversity, all them old folks would have said, well, no kidding. We already do on a regular basis. It was a different time. People were different. Adversity always has been, but people were different. Men, and I can go right here to my farmer friends. These men are decisive. These men make a stand on what they believe. They have, at least in their minds, a complete sense of right and wrong. And they will stand on the side of right. And they'll tell you to your face. I don't know how many of them that I know in a situation where we're dealing with uh, opinions about how the farm is going or cattle or what have you. They'll say, now you listen to me and I'm going to tell you. And they will. 
because that was how their generation was. They were decisive. They made decisions. They were respectful, and they demanded respect. That's the way their generation was. And the women were the same way. They valued respect, but listen, the women demand that their men are decisive, respectful, and have a sense of right and wrong. Their women demand it. This is the older generation. This generation made up the family unit that was the backbone of our society and our country. And stay here with me because this does matter to the church. Because otherwise it's an ambush. Because if we look at this and we say just one generation removed, and I have the vantage point of seeing it, and then you look at the way things are right now, men, well, they're not decisive. They're not men that can make a decision. Because a man who stands and makes a decision and says this is the way it is, well, that can be offensive or it's inappropriate. Because our society is changing the way they deal with adversity. And you take, you take the men now. You, you take just in one generation the breakdown. Men no longer the strong figure of our society. The women lose respect for the men. They go out and have their own career. No longer do they demand their men to be respectful. They don't demand respect. The breakdown is happening in our generation. And then you come into the children. The children. What do you do with the children whenever the family breakdown happens? Well, get them doing something. Entertain them. Shelter them. But these children grow up without ever dealing with adversity. Endurance is not something that they ever have experienced in their life. This need for it. They're just to survive. And then you have, in one generation, everything is just accepted as gray. There is not this decisiveness. These older folks are decisive. That's wrong. I'm not going to do it. Now it is, well, it depends on how you look at it. It's all in the eyes of the beholder. Right and wrong has become gray. And we have that. You can take, what about our, the work ethic of the next generation? It's, it's shocking to me. And I'm not that old, I don't think. At least I don't look, feel like I am. But it is shocking to me. When I was a young fella... Working for my father-in-law. All you ever heard was you need a degree. You got to go to college. Because there's no way you can make it just being a good worker. Everybody's a good worker. In one generation. If you want to be successful. You want your children to be successful. Then you teach them how to work. Because nobody works anymore. And so it's gone from a young boy on our road, he come over and he said, I want you to help me, I'm going, getting out of high school and I want you to help me decide what I'm going to do. What do you think I ought to do? I said, make a plan and learn to work. 
and you'll never go hungry. I was bush hogging the other day and I was listening to on the radio Dave Ramsey. And I thought he was I thought he was joking when a man called in and said, I want some advice on my new business. And he said, This business, this business is home maintenance. And Dave Ramsey said, What a great business. He said, You are going to be very wealthy. And I thought, because back in the day, that would have been something everybody did. Men did their own maintenance. And he went on to explain that that is a booming industry because nobody wants to deal with that themselves. Nobody wants to work. And, you know, we, we go into this and we think, well, everybody wants to be self-employed. And I hear guys talk about being self-employed nowadays, and it's all about being able to do less. If you have your own business, you are going to be, have the opportunity to do more. That is why you have your own business. And if you're not willing to wake up every morning and say, let me look at who I'm working for today, because every customer is your employer, and go out there and say, set an alarm and say, I have to be to work today. And when I get there, I have to work as hard as I can because I got to make sure that I keep my job that I have today with my new employer and work hard and be presentable and honest. That's being self-employed. But nowadays, it's about, I'm going to be self-employed so I don't have to work as much. You see what I'm saying? In one generation, there is all of these influences that are seeping into our society. And as we go about, as Christians, we talk about living the separate life. I want to ask us, how are we separate? What are the evidences that we are separate? When we go throughout our life and we, we see a good moral couple and we fellowship with them, and we're around them, and our kids are around them, how are we actually different? Because we have in our mind that we somehow are set aside and set apart. But wouldn't there need to be some kind of evidence that that's the case? And if that evidence is deteriorated to where we're not real sure about it, I want to suggest that influences have crept into our life, that we can be influenced by this. Nobody makes a stand nowadays, and comfort is king, whatever is the most comfortable. But what this has done, it has taken adversity out of, out of the life of this next generation, adversity, dealing with things. It's taken it out, and if you do not deal with adversity, you will not have the ability to deal with adversity, and adversity is coming. So therefore, if we ourselves remove ourselves from any adversity and we take our children and we shelter them away, when, not if, when that day comes, we have no ability to deal. We cannot. And when we consider the words in the gospel of this Bible, it talks about the need of endurance. We need endurance. I want this to be an alarm clock of sorts for anybody that may think that things are easy and they always will be. That's not the gospel. 
we have need of endurance. And if you, don't, if you doubt that, I encourage you to go to any sporting event in our community, football, basketball, doesn't matter, go up into the stands and look around and ask yourself, if we implemented the draft today for an army to defend our country, what kind of army would we have? We would be an embarrassment. Not that they all are. And obviously, without saying, I'm not talking about yours or mine, of course. But our, I'm talking about our society. I'm talking about the way that it has declined because those influences are right at the door, and I'm going to suggest they're already here. Across the page in 2 Timothy, I want us to look at chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 7. It says, You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engages in warfare, entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. A hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. And then, if you turn over to Hebrews 12, very familiar scripture, after it talks about all of the old uh, patriarchs of the Bible enduring. It says 12.1, Therefore we, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The need of endurance, trials, testings, persecutions, adversity, we're going to deal with those things. But our ability, just like our children, it does not just come overnight, the ability to deal with adversity. That doesn't, that's not something that we just have. That is why there are trials. That's why there's times when everything seems like, you know, when it rains, it pours, and it's raining pretty hard, and you don't understand why it's going on. It's almost like the verse where it says, Think it not strange. You see, the work of the Lord is preparing His people to be able to endure. To endure to the end. He who endures to the end will be saved. God is doing a work in us. This adversity that we run into is something that prepares us so that in the end, we are prepared to be able to deal with adversity. This is something we have to take head on. We have to understand there is a work being done. You know, it talks about how your faith being tested by fire for the genuineness of your faith, to see how genuine it is. That's a process. That is a process that we all are going through, preparing us for perilous times in last days. That's something that we're doing right now. You know, you think about, I don't know if you realize this, and probably you do, and I'm... I'm one of the last ones to, to see these things, but the New Testament. There was a lot of the New Testament wrote in prison. Men were in prison. They were in chains. And you, take a, you think about 
how that adversity and conflict and controversy, where they had to deal with things in their life, very difficult things. You know, a man being beaten and thrown in prison, he's dealing with adversity. But sometimes whenever somebody blocks us in in the parking lot or some young preacher says, keep your kids quiet, then, uh, man, that's adversity. Man, that's tough. But you see what I'm saying, how things can change. And we, too, are on the same course as the people of old in the past. Yet what has changed is the way that we are dealing with adversity, how that we look at that. And Galatians 2, I was reading about when Paul... I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read it to you. Y'all sit right there. I'm going to read it. Nobody leave. Galatians 2, and this is whenever Paul was writing this, and he said, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Wait a minute. That's inappropriate. That's offensive. But he did. And he went on to say why, because he was not being consistent with the way he was treating fellow Christians that were Gentiles versus the Jews. And then when it came down to 14, it said, But when I saw that there were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, he confronted him right to his face. And it goes right on down through there. Can you imagine in our society, in our day, if we confronted each other to their face straightforward because they're not being truthful about the gospel? That doesn't seem right. But you know what? It's because things have changed. The influences have changed. This right here has changed. Because if you said these were men, you'd have to ask, where are the men now? Where are the men that would confront another man to his face? Where is a man that would be able to make a stand and say, this is what I believe is right? And make a stand. Because this message should be an alarm clock for every head of the house. And it should be an alarm clock for every mother and wife that says, I want that in my husband. I want him to be a man. Because listen, if we cannot be men in our everyday life, how are we going to be men when it comes to persecutions, when it comes to struggles, on a dark night in our families, with our children, or whoever it is, how are we going to be men overnight? We're not. And whenever somebody says, you're going to have to man up, you say, what's his problem? This bunch here didn't. This bunch here didn't. This bunch here understood it. So why is it that our young men, and maybe some of us, have just flat gotten soft? Where are the men? And where are the women that demand men to be men? Because if we let this go, and we say, this whole idea of being able to make a stand and deal with adversity, if this is something that we are not going to make a priority, then when we get to this next generation, how will we be able to contend earnestly for the faith? How can we just say we contend earnestly? We fight the good fight. We lay hold of the promises. 
as far as we can, our faith will take us. The dark nights, the difficult times, whatever it might be, whatever things go on, whatever shaking goes on, everything that we're doing, we are going to lay hold as Christians, but every other part of our life, we just roll over and we don't make any stand whatsoever. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. And we have to be able to recognize now, if we haven't already, and I'm not saying that anybody here is in this category. I'm just saying the influences, if you take 10, 20, 30% of that influence into your life, it can have an effect. I'm not saying anybody here is in, I mean, I'm not saying everybody man up in here. I'm just saying beware of the influences of our society because they are there. They're at the door and they're creeping every chance they get into our lives, into our children, and into our churches. I want us to think about us as earthly fathers. I want us to think about this. I want to draw a comparison in a minute to our heavenly father. Earthly fathers, we have children. So we instruct these kids and we teach the kids because they, they don't come out with with preconceived notions. If a kid acts and responds in a certain way, it's because he has learned that. He wasn't born that way. He has learned that. He has a sinful nature, but his reactions are to his environment. However, he's been taught to do that. We call it taught, but it's because he is reacting to whatever he's been, whatever environment he's in. And so we bring him out, we teach him we try to teach them responsibility, and, and, you know, we don't really know how real well to do it. At least I didn't, but I was determined. I was really zealous about it, like a lot of you all are as well, just really determined. I can remember with Houston. Houston was, where is Houston? Houston was uh, about four, and, man, I had him. He's working with me on the farm. He got up one morning, and he said, Dad, I don't want to work. And I said, well... The reason we work is because, one thing, it's the right thing to do. And also, if we're going to have nice things, we have to work for them. We don't want to one day just have to borrow things from people. We want to be able to work hard and be able to take care of ourselves and be able to give to other people, this and that. And he said, well, I don't want to have any nice things. And I said, well, okay. So I got a trash bag, and we went to his room, and I said, you don't have to work, but you're going to lose everything you have. So let's start with your toys, start with your boots, start with your nice outfit. I mean, we stripped his room bare, and I said, you don't have to work. All day. He didn't have anything to do. He didn't have any toys, didn't have anything. But he didn't care. He didn't want to work. And I said, oh, he'll be down here. No, he didn't. The next day he gets up, I don't care about those things. Now, at this point, I have locked horns with a four-year-old. There is a standoff going on, and I'm second-guessing myself. I'm asking some of my farmer buddies, and they're getting a kick out of it. I said, I've got to stick this out to the end, and I'm not sure I'm going to win because he doesn't care. And this went on several days, and finally, about the third day, he said, I sure do want a certain toy he had. And I said, well, you can't have nice things if you don't work. And he said, well, I think I'm ready to start working. And I said, well, then every day you work, you can pick one thing out of the bag. And he finally got all of his stuff back. But, you know, we think we're going to teach them 
But these little fellows are thinking. They're thinking about these things. And, and uh, sometimes you wonder who's winning in that, in that battle. But, but we teach them respect. We teach them to respect their mother, to respect each other. And that goes both ways. We teach them that we respect them as well. And we want to encourage them. We want to strengthen these, these children. We want to encourage when something when they do something good, you want to talk about it. You want to encourage them. You want them to be strong. Because the idea is that one day they're going to come to the Lord and they're going to have these habits, they're going to have this character that is going to be able to deal with the wiles of the devil, deal with, with things in their life. They're going to be more prepared, and that's my responsibility. And, and you want them to be, I want my boys to be able to, and my girls are as well, to be expressive, to be able to make decisions. And just this week, I was, I was talking to Tommy, of all, I mean, the young Tommy. We were in the tractor. And I said, Tommy, you have to do difficult things to become stronger. You're five years old. You need to be on your way to being a lot stronger than you are. I was really bending his ear. And I said, you have to be able to tell me. You have to be able to tell other people whatever you're feeling and what you believe to be right. Do you understand me? And he looked, yes, sir. And I said, so what are you thinking about? He said, I don't want to talk to you anymore about it. <laughs> so in one way, we was really doing good. In the other way, we, went, we fell off the wagon the other way. But I thought, I want him to tell me how he feels. But I didn't want him to tell me that. But we go through these things as earthly fathers. Okay, we go through these things. We allow adversity into our children's life, and hopefully in a controlled way. And I hope he talks to me again soon. I hope this doesn't go on for years. But, um, but we, we allow adversity. We allow... As earthly fathers, we allow this because we know it strengthens. It builds character in these children. It builds them to be able to, whenever something doesn't go their way, they just deal with it. They deal with it. And that's our responsibility as earthly fathers. And Lord willing, it will, it will develop leaders because in our downward spiral if a child has the character to be a leader he will really stand out in the next generation but I want us to think about as we draw a comparison to our heavenly father because you think about how he saved us and we came to the Lord and we were just had just as blank a slate spiritually as our children do when they're born. And God allows things in our life. And He allows us too to have adversity. He's preparing us for when we are mature spiritually. Whenever we are useful to the Lord. When we are fruit bearers. That whenever we go out into the world, we can't be derailed just like our children. In serious situations, in dark nights, there was a preparation that went on. And he enables us to be doers of the word through this process as our Heavenly Father. And you think about how our Heavenly Father has instructed us. 
and taught us just in our little assembly right here in Kentucky. You think about how he has put a focus on his word. You know, if you think about the last, and some of us were here this long, but 30 years, we had a pastor that focused, he put our focus on the word of God constantly. Almost every message. You could finish the sentence before he was done speaking about don't believe it because I said it. Believe it because the Word says it. And after a while you think, obviously, you don't have to say that. But the truth is he did have to say it because that's our human nature. We need to be reminded, just like our children. We need to be reminded. And God is instructed. And I want to tell you what that has done. That has made a group of people to be knowledgeable of the Word. Because if the pastor had not focused us to the Word of God, we would have heard a lot of good opinions and good analogies, but we would have... They can only affect us short term, but the Word of God can affect us for the rest of our life. And it's caused a group of people to be knowledgeable, which is strength steadfast, which is stable, capable. The indwelling Christ in our hearts makes us more than conquerors, more than conquerors, very capable because of that directing. It has created leaders. You know, a good leader, and I talked to them at youth camp about this, a good leader can get in front of a bunch of people week in and week out, and he can instruct the people, he can love the people, he can care for the people, and he can create a, a good environment for people to grow. And he can help people to be able to get to the point where God wants them to be and to grow and become mature. But a great leader creates other leaders. A great leader creates more leaders. And if you think about just like what we have right here in our church. We have men that are very capable of leading. Multiple men. We may have multiple pastors right here in our church. And I'm not talking about multiple pastors in this church. I'm talking about in God's timing, in God's will. We may have, there may be several, at least, men that go out and pastor churches that God uses in other places all because of a focus to the Word, a focus. And it's made a lot of men be capable of being leaders right here in our midst. And that is not to the glory of a man. That is to the glory of God because he has enabled him to see that. And so we think about going forward with our church, that our church is doing well. And folks, our church is doing well very well. It really is. I've been here a long time. I don't know a healthier time than right now, spiritually, and amongst the people in our church is as a living body. I don't know of a time that it is like it is now. But I want to warn us about something. A church doing good, that is an indicator or a gauge of a church's potential. 
it is not an indicator of a church's accomplishment because we have accomplished nothing. We have, we have not arrived at any point. All it is is that we have now seen we have the potential, Christ in us, and a lot of teaching and opportunities. We have potential as a church. The good that we have is in Christ. It's not an accomplishment. We will never have a fulfilled accomplishment until we are on the other side. But as we are here, it does, it is an indicator of our potential. And no flesh will glory in his presence. And one day we will all cast our crowns at his feet and praise him for what he did. But we're going to look back and we're going to realize the, how valuable it was to be focused on the word. To be focused on the word. No matter what man comes and what man goes behind the pulpit, it is the word of God that abides forever. And that is the work that does, that is what does the work in our heart that enables us to be able to endure. And when we endure, we're going to bear fruit. Amen. Our need for endurance. All right, I'm getting to my message. Y'all hang in here. We all have a similar foundation. You think about this. Revelation. Not the book, but God's revelation. Man seeing truth. That does not necessarily mean that man responds to that. It doesn't mean that he accepts it. But to have divine revelation is have a man's eyes open. Y'all remember that day? Y'all remember that day that your eyes were open? And then there's something in the man that inspires him or draws him to the Lord. Because it says in John, no man comes to the Father unless the Father who sent him. No man comes to me unless the Father draws him. And that is God drawing him. And then there is illumination. Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to understand that truth. So we have a divine revelation. We see it for the first time. Then we are prompted by the Lord. We are inspired. We, we are drawn to the Lord. And then after we've come, He gives us illumination, a work of the Holy Spirit, to now we can understand truth. Suddenly you go to a Bible and you begin to read it. You listen to a good sermon. You listen to something that's anointed. And your mind and your heart is illuminated. This is something, this is the greatest privilege on this earth, is the things I just said. To have an, a divine revelation of truth. To be able to see it. And then to be prompted to receive it. And then to have your mind and your heart illuminated to God's truth by the Holy Spirit. That is the greatest thing we have on this earth. That's it. Without that, nothing else matters. That's the foundation. That's being a Christian. And whenever we look at that, with this wonderful time and environment that we have, there's no limit or no recommended amount of time that a person learns. There's no certain amount of knowledge that a person receives. And there's a warning that goes with it. We can become comfortable stopping right there. 
We can become satisfied with learning. Just learning. Just give me a good sermon. Just give me a good sermon. Let me have my cup of coffee in my Bible in the mornings and just let me learn. And we can become comfortable with that. Because if we can stay in this little, this, this little shelter, the church is not a bomb shelter. It's a training ground. This is not a bomb shelter. This is not where we had a revelation one time and came to the Lord and our minds were illuminated and we have all that we need. We no longer have needs. Because you know what? We're in the bomb shelter. But folks, it's a training ground. Because God saved us for a purpose. And the work He's doing in us is for us to be able to endure. And if we do not deal with adversity, we will not know how to deal with adversity. This is something that we have to be able to... We talk about exercising our faith. We talk about making a stand. We talk about stepping out and believing to be led by the Lord. We talk about all these things, but do those things require action or do they not? Because if there is not something within us that causes us to step out of this wonderful, meaningful, purposeful environment, I'm not talking about leaving the church. I'm talking about taking what we have and putting it into practice. To, pr to be able to press on. To be able to not be satisfied with just the way that it used to be. How much effort do we put into just trying to get back to the way that I remembered it? Can we just get something that is comfortable? There's a warning in this, that this is not the bomb shelter. This is not a place just to come. We want to hear a good sermon that we're comfortable with. I want to now get to our message in Philippians 3. As we've come up to this point talking about the influences that are, and we've hopefully shown without a doubt that they exist, and that they do, to a degree, influence us. And there is a great need of us to finish the race that is set before us. And we realize, and we've made it clear as a bell, that we are Christians. That God has saved us for a purpose. He's put us into a wonderful environment. And it might have been years, and we may have had a lot of things that have gone on that we consider to be evidences, Ebenezer stones, things in our life that we look back and we say, man, this is why I was saved. This is why I've come to where I'm at. But I want us to read, Paul wrote this, and he is writing about himself. And he is writing about, now you remember, he wrote this in prison. This is some 20 plus years after he was converted on the road to Damascus. Y'all remember that story? And all that's gone on since in the days after where his eyes were healed and God called him. This is some 20-some years. 
I want us to listen to these words. I want us to consider our own selves and our own Christian walk. Let's start in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of mutilation. Man. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul is describing his pre-conversion life. He's talking about, as we talked about, mentioned Pharisees several times in messages here, men that were devout. These men, their entire relationship, their entire Christian life was based on performance. It was based on what they did. There was nothing personal about it. And they made things up as they went. But that was a very highly respected thing to be a Pharisee religiously from common man. They, they considered the Pharisees to be the most knowledgeable. And there was a pride that went along with that. The Pharisees, you remember the Pharisee that said, I thank thee God that I'm not like other men. You know, that kind of a, an air about them because they had in their minds the knowledge, like he said, the zeal. They had all these things that would be something to be admired in a Christian. And they just did things right. And then as we go to verse 7, it says, But what things were gain to me, I have counted loss for Christ. And those things, when it says those things were gain, that is plural in the Greek. And then he says, I have counted loss, which is singular. He took all those things that he had gained of a life of trying to, to serve, trying to perform. All those things is plural. And he said, I count it as loss, singular. In verse 8, it says, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss. And folks, let me tell you, 8 through 10 is profound. 8 through 10, I don't know how many times I've read it, but every time in preparing this message, I read it over and over, and it is profound. If you think about common man, common man trying to make it to heaven by just doing right, just doing right, being good moral people, Read this eight, verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Folks, that is why we have the need of endurance. That is why. Think about 
in verse 9, he talks about this is a personal relationship to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. Put your own name there. That I may know him. How can I know him? That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, which I don't believe is just that his resurrection was powerful. It is the power that we receive because he raised from the dead. The power of the resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Folks, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, it is empowering to us to be able to deal with adversity and to be able to have endurance. That is the power, that is the ability, and that is the potential in every one of us hearts tonight is the indwelling Christ. That's it. But that we may know him and partake in his sufferings. I read that, that I may know him and partake in his sufferings. But what if I don't have any endurance? What if I can't endure the small things in life? What if all it takes is, is somebody dying? Or somebody failing? Or somebody looking you in the eye and saying no? If I can't deal with that, then how can I read this and talk about having the endurance to partake in Christ's sufferings? That I may know Him. How can I have that? Because, see, we've talked about this. This will rob us from endurance. This will rob our children. This influence of society. But if we can latch on right here and say that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and partake in his sufferings. Let's move right on. In verse 12, it says, Not that I have already attained or arrived at, or am already perfected, but I press on, which means to follow after, that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, which means to have laid hold of. But I, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When it talks about obtained, not that I've already obtained. Obtained what? Look at the verse before it that I may know Him. He says, it's not that I have already obtained, but this one thing I do, I press on. He pressed on. And I'm going to tell you, you and I are fragile. We need endurance because we need to be able to press on as well. We need to be able to have that ability to do that. To press on. In verse 12, it talks about, not that I'm already perfected, but I press on and I may hold, lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold. To lay hold of it. How can we as Christians lay hold? 
Have we laid hold of something in our life? Do we lay hold of convictions? If you ask yourself quietly, what convictions do I lay hold of? One time I heard a preacher say that you would die for. Let's not even go that far. Let's just say that I would lay hold of, that I would make a stand of. I would make a stand on this. I lay hold of it. As a man and as a woman, as a Christian, I lay hold. I'm not buying. I'm laying hold. How many of those things do we have in our life? How many is there? What about in our relationships? Do we lay hold of what we know to be right in our convictions? For whoever that's for. Or has it all become gray? Because our society says, well, it's situation ethics. It's not situation ethics. It's sin. And you've got to be able to lay hold. If your heart smites you, that's the Spirit of the Lord. That's conviction. If you're guilty about something that's going on, then that's a conviction. How many of us lay hold of convictions? Because we have need of endurance. We have need of endurance. In verse 13... Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I've already read this, but listen. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that the responsibility and the role of leadership to say church, family, child, wife, whoever it is, forgetting those things that are behind. Because sometimes the things in our past can be a hindrance. The things of our past can be the indicator as to whether we're doing well. What if we said, when it comes to knowing Him, that I may know Him, church member, press on. Press on. And doesn't the leadership go to every single person and say, everybody, in one accord, press on together? Because we need that in our life. We need to be reminded. We need somebody to give us the old kick in the seat of the pants sometimes and say, press on to know Him. Press on to know Him. When we look at... Uh, in 14 it says, I press towards the goal or the mark for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We all obviously see that the prize is the call. That is the prize, folks. That is the most valuable prize we will ever receive is to have the call in Christ Jesus, the upward call. And in verse 15 it says, Therefore let us, as many as are mature... Some of your Bibles may say perfect or perfected. Have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. I can't think of anything more valuable 
for us as a church? If I had to really focus it down and think about you and me as members here, is that we press on to know Him in unity. That we press on. That we do not allow the things of the past. We do not allow the things that we would like to think of because it's more comfortable. If we just stop and say, I just want to know you more. I just want to be used of you. I want to partake in whatever it is in this life, even if it is suffering for your name. And every single one of us do it together. This assembly is so valuable if, if we press on, if we activate these gifts that are within us. Man doesn't give gifts. A good pastor doesn't create gifts. God gives a man a gift. And there's many different gifts, and there's many different gifts sitting right here. And I'm not picking on one in particular. But we have one who came up here with a gift and was a good song leader right off the bat. But I'm going to tell you, he has the making of a great song leader. And it's because of what's in his heart. And it is a job of leadership to stay. You of yourself are nothing. But the gift God's put in you, stir it up. Stir it up and give him the glory for it. Give him the glory for it. Don't ever let yourself have pride. Don't ever let yourself try to be noticed. Don't ever let these things happen. And he has to be reminded. And that's what leadership's about. He has to be reminded. And he will become useful to the Lord. A great song leader. And that is just an example. There are a lot of gifts in here. And it's very valuable going forward that we press on. That we press on to know him. That we continue focusing on the word of God. But we activate the gifts that are within us. I want us to consider that. Because forsaking pride, because a lot of times past experience involves pride. A lot of times when a person won't let go of past experiences, when it comes to church experience, it's because of pride. It's the way it was back in the day. Folks, God is still on his throne, and he saved us for a purpose. And there may have been good days of the past, but I'm going to tell you there's great days in the future to every single one of us that name the name of Jesus and recognize the power of the indwelling Christ and recognize that gifts that are put in each one of us come from God, and no man can discount that. No man is going to rob us of that. If we have a gift from the Lord, then let's activate. Let's stir it up in each other and let's use it. We're a body. We're a living body. We're not just a dead organization of the past. This church didn't die with our pastor. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And he's going to bring it around. And I want to be a part. I want to be a part. I want to be a member right here just like everybody else here. I want to be here and support the work of the Lord. 
I want to be here and press on to knowing with you in unity. To press on. That's what I keep thinking about. And when things become obvious in someone's life, they have a gift or they have an ability, I want to be one that encourages them and says, you got it. Now, where can we find an opportunity for you to be used? Let's seek for it. Let's search. Because that's stirring it up. It's stirring it up. And if it doesn't get stirred, it can go on a long time. And don't you think the devil's not content just to leave you sit still and don't stir that gift? Because when you realize the gift that is within you comes from the Lord and the power to be able to perform that gift comes from the indwelling Christ, the powers of darkness are in trouble. The powers of darkness are in trouble. Anybody here that may be a little bit discouraged because it may not look like the opportunity that you saw it to be. Maybe some, a door shut in your life that you say, this is my gift. God is in control. And God has a plan. And He's going to use us. And that's what we're going to do. I want us to consider that as we begin to close this and talk about pressing on. And Jeff mentioned in Isaiah 66 about he who has a poor and contrite heart, this man God will not despise. And that is something that we have to do. That is the opposite of someone that has pride from something of the past. A poor and contrite heart. In Hosea 6 it says, Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And our going forth is as certain as the dawn as well if we are following in whatever He wants us to do. And in Turn over to 2 Timothy as we begin to wrap this up. Second Timothy was the final book or letter, whatever you want to call it, that Paul wrote. This was before this was the end, this was the end of his, his ministry was in 2 Timothy. In verse 6 it says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but to all that have loved his appearing. And that, to me, speaks of endurance. And I want to close in one, one more verse in Second Peter. Or one more series of verses. And I want us to consider our need for endurance. Because adversity is here. And that we are in the last days. And I want an alarm clock in our spirits to go off. And for us to realize the things that we're going to be are already in motion. Whether or not we realize it or want to admit it or not. An ambush is only an ambush if you don't know it's coming. In 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening? And that word hastening means to urge oneself on with respect to time. To urge oneself on with respect to time. Looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him as it is written to you. As in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. But you, therefore, brethren, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for giving us time. We thank you for preparing us. We thank you for your mercy. We're a needful people, Father. We desperately need to hear from you week in and week out, and we need your presence every day. God, I pray you would have mercy upon us and make straight the paths before us, God, and you would show us your will. God, we thank you for it. We dismiss ourselves and we ask that you would watch over us and keep us and continue to show us truth. In Jesus' name, amen.